This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. A warning before we begin. This podcast is explicit in every way. And this episode contains racial and homophobic slurs. It's the night of the 2016 MTV VMAs. Rihanna just walked away with the big video vanguard of the year award. She's someone I've been in love with since I was 22 years old. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Wait, wasn't this the same night Drake went in for a kiss? Yeah, and Rihanna dodged that mug. (laughs) And after the show, all the celebs pulled up to her after party. It's like a um, VMA after party at Up and Down. And I guess it was Rihanna's after party. The party's at NYC Club Up and Down, and one of the attendees happens to be Atlanta artist I Love McConan. And so everybody was in the building, you know what I'm saying? And we playing music, everybody's dancing, having a good time, said what's up to everybody in there, all the stars, everybody who was a thing, right? Fashionistas, models, influencers, pop stars. The room is heavy with the who's who of the music world. The lights are dim, bottles and balloons everywhere. And McConan, he's mingling in the back with some of his fashion designer friends. They even took shrooms earlier in the night, so everybody was feeling, you know, nice. Having a good time. Until... Drake and Rihanna walk in, and everybody moves out the way, and they got big security. And I ain't seen Drake in a minute, you know what I'm saying? So I'm like, oh, Drake, 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 what's up? A couple years earlier, Drake and McConan had made magic together. When Drake turned McConan's viral song Tuesday into a Billboard hit and signed him to his label, OVO. And so then Drake looked at me. I was like, Drake, what's up? And then he looked at me like, nigga, next time I see you, I'm going to fuck you up for talking shit. Although Drake and McConan had officially severed ties months before, it had been a while since they'd seen each other face to face. But McConan still didn't have any reason to think that there was any love loss. Whole security, everybody looking like, you know what I mean? They, they see Drake is like disgruntled. He's about to, so they all looking like, what's the target? And they see McConan and they're like, huh? Everybody just kind of get look confused. Like, uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? That ain't no muscle to go and beat down type shit. Like, you know, bro, look, chill. So they just kind of walked on. And then, you know, I, I just felt like a lot of, you know, like weird energy because Rihanna kind of looked at me and was like, what the fuck? I'm like, nigga, this is my night up in this bitch. What the fuck are y'all doing? And I was just like, look, I don't know. What's, I'm going to just get up out of here. With these type of vibes, McConan realizes it's about time to go. He starts making his way to the exit. I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to go ahead and leave. Because even everybody was, what you do to Drake? What you do? I'm like, I, I just said, what's up? You know what I mean? I don't know what's going on. And so I was like, all right, let me get out of here. So then as I'm walking out of the club, I see other OVO dudes. And they're like, McConan, what's up, bro? What's up? I'm like, bro, I don't know what's up. Y'all tell me what's up. Your man's just chomp me down saying, you know what I'm saying? He gonna fuck me up next time you see me. So I'm out because I don't, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to cause no problems up in here at this little nice queer friendly establishment. You know what I'm saying? So I'm a dip. And so I dip. And then, you know, I tweeted out and like, yo, like, I don't know what this is about. And then one of his assistants from one of his little fans, I said, you should take that down because this and that. And I'm like, how? Take, like, what are we saying, y'all? It's like, I'm not get, I don't have no communication with y'all, right? And then when I see y'all in public, it's like, y'all want beef. And I'm like, I don't have no beef with you. So what is the beef about? What is the beef about? This question has followed McConan for years. And just about anybody who witnessed McConan's rise has speculated about his fallout with Drake. It always felt deeper than just two rappers on the outs. I feel like there's a, a, a strong perception that the reason that relationship fizzled, you know. Was because I was gay? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's the case because me and him wasn't talking before that. You know what I mean? Now, McConan wasn't out at the time, but the way he anticipates the question, it speaks volumes. He's heard it a million different times, a million different ways. And even though it shouldn't matter, the real question, is why hip-hop cares so much in the first place. Maybe nothing is more clearly defined by rap than the fragility of black masculinity and the perceived threat to masculinity that queerness poses. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Sydney Madden. And from NPR Music, this is Louder Than a Riot. 
where we confront the double standard that's become the standard. On every episode this season, we tackle one unwritten rule of hip-hop that affects the most marginalized among us and holds the entire culture back. And one that a new generation of rap refuses to stand for. Just as McConan was making it cool to get emo in the trap, the industry turned its back on him. So we're lifting the veil on the story of I Love McConan and grappling with the ways his presence brought out rap's worst behavior. This is nervous. This is ner- I'm nervous. You nervous? Yeah. Why are you nervous? You man? know, this is a lot. There's a lot of uh, conversations and thoughts I've had in my own head you yeah. know, that I've yet to, I guess, express in public. On this episode, rule number six, real niggas go hard. Pause. No homo. Man, I'll never forget how I found out about this dude. So I'm at the office one day at Creative Loafing, my old paper in Atlanta, RIP, when one of my coworkers, the homie and former culture editor Gavin Godfrey, burst into the office. He'd just gotten hip to the latest rapper bubbling up in Atlanta. I'll never forget there was this kind of like chubby kid with the little, you know, S-curl thing going on. And right off the top, Gavin saw something in McConan. With like a very loud, like kind of neon greenish hoodie. It was just like, you, he was, it was peacocking. So Gavin starts running down dude's discography for me, pulling up videos, playing joints off his mixtape, and everything about him, it's just hitting different. Like you saw him and you couldn't take your eyes off of him. And so I was like, everything I see, I now need to hear what's going on. He plays a song called Too Much. And McConan, he's singing over trap beats. Not mumbling melodies, but straight up singing. Like a trippy, drippy, trap liberace. It, it, it struck me. I was like, this kid sounds like a weird uh, pop star from like the 80s. He had these like Tears for Fears vibes going. And when he played the video for I Don't Sell Molly No More, I saw the vision. West Coast McConan, the best thing going. They really like my movies, it's the best thing showing. And forget low budget. This video, it was zero budget. He's rolling through the east side, trapping out of vintage ice cream truck, but all kind of strange things hanging out the window. Mannequin heads and whatnot. I'm talking about, I got the gas and the coat. I don't sell my lead no more. It was total tragic comedy. You know, in Atlanta, our history is like, we really celebrate and pride like our weirdos, right? Like our creatives who are just out there, eccentric, um, have done some of the greatest, coolest things in the city. Think about like an Andre 3000. You think of really anybody in Dungeon Family, Joy, Gip, like these folks, um, they have this kind of vibe, this really like, you know, I'm me and there's no bones about it. Yeah, Atlanta might be known for producing some eccentric cats. But no class of AT aliens was weirder than the class of 2014. I'm talking Young Thug, Rich Homie Quan, OG Mako. But McConan, he almost made everything else out of Trap Lana sound normal in comparison. He didn't just sound different. He was coming at rap from a totally unique point of view. McConan felt foreign, from the vulnerability in his voice straight down to his swag. To see this kid, especially in hip-hop, was so much like machismo. He was just, like, bragging about how he was into, like, the cosmetics industry. Before McConan touched the mic, he was a bona fide hairdresser. He grew up with a beautician for a mom and would practice his skills on mannequin heads, dyeing their hair in rainbow colors for fun. And it was while he was at beauty school that he stumbled into music. So some of the students at the school were doing music. And so um, they let me sort of like tag along and learn under them. And uh, one of the guys, Eddie Hollywood, was like a real trap star. You know what I'm saying? Really big in the streets, all that. And he had got in trouble with the law and all that. So he was in beauty school doing something positive with his time. And then he has sort of like, you know, changed his life over and got reborn again Christian. And so he started doing like, crunk church music, right? And so I was, that was my first introduction to the Atlanta music scene was through uh, the crunk church music. And so this was like, 
praising God, having gospel music message behind it, but in a trap style. McCona started producing beats in his bedroom using an old BR-1180 and a keyboard, just messing around. A lot of my first early songs were just jokes, you know what I mean? Just jokey, like trolling songs where I'm just in there just doing a whole radio show by myself, you know? Like my mom would be at work from like 8 to 4. I'd be in there from like 11 to 3 and just going just silly, right? And just saying all types of stuff and listen back to it. And it's like, oh my God, this is so stupid. Nobody ever going to hear it didn't delete it. When he first started, he was just producing beats. And then I was like, oh, these are good. I'm like, why don't you let me sing to your, you know, some of your uh, songs? That's McCona's mom and first collaborator, Cosmic. She'd been a musician back in the day, so she helped him out with recording and even hopped on some of his early joints. So because my mom started helping me really work on my, my real songs to where she started taught me how teach me how to songwrite and all that. In a sense, he really learned on his own, but I taught him some fundamentals. He really wanted to produce for others. He's very good at arranging and coming up with different parts. He has a very good ear and he's good uh, keyboardist. But it was McCona's voice that really set him apart. Oh, I thought it was awesome. I thought his voice, it was different, you know, because when you come from a, a gospel, you know, R&B, <laughs> you know, and the way that he was singing, I was like, hmm. And, you know, McConan is genius in the way that he uses his voice because he knows how to hit all the notes, <laughs> but he will slide off the note. It's his own special way of doing you know, it, where it almost sounds off-key, but then it works. Basically, McConan was queer in the trap, bringing the glitz and glam of pop radio, folk music, hell, even opera to the streets. And within a few years, he found some folks in Atlanta who were down with what he was doing. Awful records. There's some fringe people that would come around every once in a while because they, they saw that this is like, this is a very welcoming group, clearly. That's Father, the founder of Awful Records, a whole slew of young cats who took psychedelics like McConan through parties and made some of the weirdest, hardest ATL hip-hop this side of Outkast. Like Father's breakout single, Look at Wrist, featuring Key and McConan. Like, you know, some of us in the crew are also very, you know what I'm saying, like moon, space, stars, and like, you know, you know so he, he kind of was, you know, into that group of like, you know, just extended thought, you know? So there was, there was members of crew that he could melt with like that. So, you know, just free thought, free thought, no judgment. What was lesser known at the time was that he was collaborating with some of the biggest and best known producers coming out of Atlanta. Producers like Mike Real Made It, Sonny Digital, Metro Boomin. Now these were the cats putting Atlanta's trap sound on the international map. And they were passing McConan around from studio to studio, almost like a cheat code. It was like the quintessential at that time, Atlanta producers, like that, wow. Like, cause you know, he would come back through every so often and then just tell us like, you know, just crazy ass tales and just random industry secrets. And, <laughs> and we're, you know, we're just all in the, we're all in the living room just like, mm, okay, man. Even though he was making a name for himself and moving fluidly between the city's mainstream and other ground scenes, McConaughey was still struggling to break big in Atlanta. By 2014, he was on the verge of giving up. Then one night while he was at Mike Will's studio with the duo Ray Shrimmer and some more industry cats, a song just flowed right out of him. I end up, you know, like uh, freestyling Tuesday right there because it was like Monday night. You know, it turned into Tuesday morning, and I'm like, we got the little clubhouse, we in the little clubhouse, my guy's out in the clubhouse, shit. I'm like, hey, you know, a little cloud going up on Tuesday. And it just started, you know what I mean? I started going with it, and I said, girl, and just made the whole little song right there on the spot. Got the club going up on the Tuesday. Got your girl in the color she chooses. Club going up on the Tuesday. Got your girl in the color she chooses. When he dropped Tuesday on SoundCloud in the summer of 2014, 
The song was so addictive, it caught fire quick. It started, it took off. You know what I mean? It was really going crazy to where it's like, it's a local legend, and everybody who on the ends is hearing it. Man, Tuesday was so Atlanta off jump. Because here's the thing about the trap capital. Everybody's got a side hustle. It ain't just the doughboys and the dancers. Even the real estate agents got a trap mentality. Everybody's fueling the underground economy one way or another. One person's work week is somebody else's weekend, and the party don't end. Like Atlanta, we know how to party, right? And I feel like we can find an excuse to turn any day into an event. And I think Tuesday really got at that. But I think it was also, uh, like, you know, weirdly, I remember hearing it was a good nod to, like, service industry people in Atlanta who actually their weekend is a Monday or a Tuesday. Um, so they felt like seen for the first time. But I also think it was just like, you know, McConan, again, is such this weird kind of oddball guy. So it makes sense that it's like, yeah, I party on a Tuesday. Like, why not get crunk, you know, on a school night rather than, like, the weekend? Because, like, that's that just seems like something so weird that, like, I should probably embrace that, right? So I was becoming, like, local, you know what I'm saying? You, you, you a champ here. You got the song. It's dope. It's... It's real, it's authentic. Like, we really coming out on a Tuesday now. Like, it's really a movement for the community. You know what I'm saying? Like, this shit is really hitting, hitting us. We really live in this one. And so um, Atlanta just started, you know, just going. We just started having the best time, you know? Like, every every, every week on Edgewood and all that, wherever at, we just having a great time. McConan had been on the bubble in Atlanta for a minute, just waiting his turn. But now that he had a club banger in his back pocket, Felt like he was about to blow. And then, like, Wiz Khalifa and them started playing it. And, like, you know, like, it started to get in the industry and people was playing it. And then uh, somebody texted me, or uh, I got a tweet, and it was like, Drake and McCone and fire. And I was like, bro, Drake and McCone, that would be fire. Huh? And then I saw the next tweet, and it was, like, from OVO Sound. It was like, have a wonderful Tuesday. And it was like, Drake, Olive McCone, remake Tuesday. And so I was like, oh, shit. And so I started playing it, and my friends <laughs> pulled out their cameras, and they reacted, and I was like... <laughs> like, no, like, what? Like, what the fuck? This is Drake. This is crazy. <laughs> God, this is crazy. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> this, there's no way this is real right now. There's two big camera going Nobody flipping packs now. I just did three in a row. Them shows is back to back to back now. Now understand, this was the era of the Drake feature. You knew you were out of here when Drake hopped on your joint. And Atlanta Cats were already basking in it. He giving Migos their first breakout hit when he jumped on Versace a year earlier. Versace, Versace, Medusa head on me like I'm Numenati. He done the same for an artist on the come up named Future when he hopped on Tony Montana. Now, it was McConan's time to feel the Drake effect. It was amazing. I was so happy. And I was like, damn, I got to get in touch with them. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, Drake, you know what I mean? You know, like, I, don't, I ain't never even talked to him about this, but it's like, he done blessed me with the with the verse. Now, the song going crazy. And now, like, shit, I'm, my stock done went up like overnight. With Drake on the first verse, Tuesday went from an Atlanta thing to a national thing. McConan was popping up everywhere. Power 106 with Jay Cruz and Just Incredible. Liftoff, Power 106, Cruz and Credit. That's right. McConan is on the liftoff. The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. I love McConan! The Roots! We'll be right back, everybody! Even Nardwar. Who are you? I am, I love McConan. McConan, welcome. The song was doing numbers. It climbed to number 12 on Billboard's Hot 100. And when McConan officially met Drake for the first time, he finally felt like he was on the inside. And Drake saw McConan as more than just a one-off, too. By September of that same year, OBO signed McConan to a single deal, and they re-released his EP under the label. Now, this was a different story. This would be the part where he launches into superstardom. But this ain't that story. Because after his signing... It felt like all the hype behind McConan just came to a standstill. There's probably a lot of stuff we don't know, but I remember it wasn't in a moment. It was more just like, where's the music? Again, Gavin Godfrey. 
I was sitting there waiting for the music, you know, and, I, and it became clear to me. I was like, damn, did they just want Tuesday? So I thought, okay, McConan, if you could actually just sit him down, take that hustle, give him the resources that an OVO and Warner Brothers or whatever who was it was at the time could provide, you could really, really tap in and make him this superstar that people were saying that he could have been, and that didn't happen. He was just kind of sitting there, and I thought that I always thought that was really weird. Like something had to have been up if they weren't trying to come up with the next Tuesday. You know what I mean? Just like Gavin, I was fiending for another hit of McConey too. So where was the music? This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast, With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out the Noom Kitchen for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from the Run Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't super clear why the music started slowing up at the time. But looking back, it was one interview that feeds into the most persistent rumor. A few months after OVO re-released McConan's EP, he made an appearance on Hot 97 with Ebro. He's uh, professing and not selling drugs anymore. Yes. And he's turning up on Tuesdays. Correct. McConan's his name. Give it up for him. Even though it was supposed to be a coming out party for one of rap's hot new emerging artists, it turned into something weird. Ebro, who's known for testing first-timers, he starts off fairly friendly. You gave Drake a pass, keep it real. I mean, it was Drake. It was a, a, I mean, he, 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 he took it to a, he took it to another level, you know what I'm saying? And it was a, it was great. Then. Damn, Ebro gets in his bag a little bit and brings up the fact that McConan worked as a cosmetologist. So cosmetology school was your way to be around women. Because, you know, a lot of times we hear a dude going to cosmetology school, we yeah. think, you know, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a part of a, He's gay. Let's yeah. just say that's how we see it. Now, I know some straight dudes that do hair, yeah. but that's not common. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like to say it's a new day and age out here, and yeah. people's mindsets just need to open up. Yeah. I did the cosmetology thing threw me for a loop. Let's keep on. I'm in the beauty. I, listen, I yeah. am in the beauty. I'm in the beauty industry. Let's let's. I'm gonna be real. I thought maybe industry. you. I thought maybe you was a gay artist. Now understand, yeah. McConan wasn't even out. So Ebro's getting all worked up by even just the idea that McConan might be gay. The dude just won't let up. Yeah, but that's so cliche. Like, it's too simple, right? Yeah, it's too simple, man. It's too simple. It's like, I mean, come on. So, uh, 
So then if somebody start up wearing pink, oh, they're good. Like, right, right, right. It's like we pass all that, y'all. Like, that's what I'm saying. We got to grow the fuck up and be grown. And yeah, stop but being skirts childish. and fingers. It was almost like Ebro was trying to yank McConan out the closet. No, I'm not saying, but there are individuals. I think Even though I Young Thug have a skirt on with some fingernails. <laughs> some fingernails and yeah. Like, just to fuck the game. But he said he wasn't gay, so whatever. Exactly. He ain't gay. What, but what does it matter if he was gay or if anybody was gay? Like, what True. are they talking about? McConan saw right through what Ebro was trying to do at the time. And he still does, nearly a decade later. When we sat down to talk to him in studio, that interview was one of the things that came up. He still sees it as a prime example of hip-hop's masculinity being threatened. Just stop, because you the one that's holding on to this ignorant masculinity bullshit that's fucking up the community right here. You the voice on radio right here, Mr. Ebro, been up here all this time, and you trying to push a stupid-ass narrative on these young kids out here like, oh, you gay. Was hip-hop obsessed with whether or not you were gay from the start? I think so, but hip-hop's been obsessed with that. McConan should know. He was a 90s baby coming up in L.A. just as rap was starting to traffic in those gangster tropes. The same tropes that he was surrounded by on his block. And so I'm just like a child, and I'm just seeing, you know, this the 90s, so, you know, gang activity starting to take off. And so my cousins are becoming bloods over here on my dad's side, and then my brother's a crib, and he over there with my grandma. I would see my gangbang cousins get into a lot with the, my uncles and stuff like that, and they'd be fighting over this masculinity on who ain't a man type shit. And it's like, we over here gangbanging, and we doing push-ups, and we fighting to shoot motherfuckers, we men. But then my, my uncles and them is like, motherfucker, I'm taking care of seven of my kids, my nephews, my, my aunts, my uncles, my mom, my pa, his, you know, his uncle, his, I'm taking care of the whole family and like we come from real gangbanging down there and you know what I'm saying so it's like we men and so I'm just watching this sort of clash of masculinity happen in my house of you in the streets gangbanging hip hop all this shit we men you know young Tupac shit we men and then this older like nah man I'm you know what I'm saying got my little job I got my khakis on I'm taking care of family I could buy a car I could buy an apartment I got a complex I'm handling business I'm a man both extremes boil down to the same thing. They each define manhood as some form of domination. I don't want to go outside and be gangbanging, you know what I mean? Like, look at me. They all, everybody used to be like, you a little faggot. You a little light-skinned mixed motherfucker. You a bitch. You ain't this. And so it's like, I've always got picked on. So it was like, gangbang was never going to be a route for me. You know what I mean? It was just like, you don't look like a gangbanger. You're going to be a, a bitch and all that shit. And so I was like, I don't want to gangbang, but then I don't want to be known as like a square. You know what I mean? I don't want to be up there like my dad and them and being all like faking and shuffling. Like, you know, <laughs> like I don't come from that. And so I, it was really, I was really confused on like, you know, what do I do? At this point, he's barely hit puberty and already he's being told he's not man enough. And then, um, you know, the whole thing for my people from the islands is like, we ain't doing no, you can't be a body boy, no gay, you know, you know what I mean? Like, so the fact that stuff, you got to cut it out and all that. So it's like, they kind of taught me like, no, that's gay. You can't do that. You know what I mean? We ain't doing that. What would it, what would they be calling gay in terms um, of what you were doing? You, you see the way you're to lay up on the couch like that <laughs> with your leg up and you like your auntie because you know you see your auntie and them go after work you know, give them a bowl of food and they laid up on the couch watching their stories you know and the little kid just go over there and emulate and they're like you know hit your leg and you look like man Lee and it's like oh I didn't know I thought you know what I mean that's what auntie was doing getting comfy shit I thought I was getting comfy on this <laughs> <laughs> and so you know everybody was big on that the lessons in hardness were definitely in overdrive. But the men in McConan's life weren't the only ones showing him how to exist in the world and express himself as a man. Uh, you know, I was burning with curiosity about why you would want to speak to me. I That's mean, Cosmic, McConan's mom uh, again. I, I know that McConan has done interviews, you know, uh, and I can understand why, but nobody has ever asked to interview me. So I'm just wondering, yeah, why would you want to speak to me? What is this about? We're talking to Cosmic. Because she's the first person who introduced McConan to the beauty industry. So I would take him to work with me, you know, even when I was uh, teaching uh, uh, at the school, at the salon, you know. So he's been around, you know, uh, cosmetology for most of his life. Cosmetology, the same industry Ebro would call him out for being a part of. 
But this was also the place where he learned how to counterbalance all the mess he was picking up from the men in his life. Oh, man, I learned everything about beauty from my mom. You know, I, I found that beauty is in the eye of the beholder and beauty is not what everybody sees. I just saw a lot of caring, nurturing, uh, loving, you know what I'm saying, and uh, support. Again, that gave him an audience, too, to perform, I guess. <laughs> you know, because of people, you know, loved him. Uh, like I said, he's very friendly and expressive. And so, you know, these are the type of characters that you find in the beauty business. I mean, very expressive character. Everybody is a star in the beauty business. Even though we are creating, you know, stars, we're grooming them, we're helping people with their self-esteem. So he grew up in that uh, culture, I guess you can say, where, you know, we help one another to feel better. You know, we tell stories, you know, uh, we do dance, we sing, you know, you know, you go to the salon or barbershop, you know what it's like. So, yeah, from very young age, he was there. And even then, that's when I started to see trans and gays and, you know what I'm saying, lesbians and all these different orientations. And then I got to really be around them and, like, you know, spend every day with them and learn them and, like, love them and be able to accept them. So it, it really resonated with me through a lot of different things in my life of the world, of being able to dial in into the beauty business and, and see that. I, I learned how to treat women. I learned how women act and how women are and why women, you know, are the way they are. And it was like, it was really a full woman study, you know, for me. Whatever internal tug of war McConan was feeling between these different ways of being only intensified as he fell in love with hip hop. That's when he started to realize keeping it real was mostly just an empty slogan. Once hip hop entered the picture for you, how did that start to shape your your views around what it meant to to be a man or, you know, what have you? Yeah, um, oh, that's when it really got confusing. <laughs> you know, because it's like I'm seeing I'm thinking my gangbanging cousins them as men. You know what I mean? Because they go to jail and they they came out and they still buffer. You know what I mean? And I'm like, damn, like they're men, you know? And then when I'm seeing hip-hop, I'm seeing a lot of people emulate the life and, like, wear the thing and start having a look. But it's like, I can tell, like, a lot of them ain't really from it because I've seen my family from it to, like, you know, I've seen I've seen the, the, the tragedy of it. And it's not all that glissy <laughs> to make everybody on there making the scene, you know? Like, it ain't fun to be running around red flagged up uh, 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 the way the videos be showing because it's like I'm seeing drive-bys in my neighborhood and stuff like that and so as hip-hop was coming in and like yo these the men these the dudes and I'm just like I, I mean I I guess I don't know I'm still a kid who am I to say what a man is you know what I mean and so I'm seeing my older brothers and them rock to the Jay-Z and all this stuff and be out here flossing and doing the whole you know I got the car. I'm a, I'm a man. You know, I got the car. I got the girls. I, you know what I mean? All this. But then I would live, you know, I would, I would know these people, right? And so I would see my brothers and them and like the way they would, it was like a facade. I'm not seeing no man stuff. You know what I mean? But I'm do seeing that you quick to jump up and go out with your boys again to go hang out with the so-called men. But when you're around the house, I'm not getting no man call. You over here calling me a faggot. You know what I'm saying? You dissing me because I'm, I guess, not as masculine or buff. Black masculinity has always been challenged because of white supremacy, right? And this, scene, this sense that white supremacy um, feminizes black men, right? There's been this idea that, you know, the performance of black men has to be uncut <laughs> so that folks have not any questions about what black masculinity is, right? That's Mark Anthony Neal, a renowned academic and cultural critic who's writing on black music and pop culture, deconstructs the ways we define manhood. But when we talk about masculinity or femininity, right, this is a social construct of what that is, right? So that's the clothes that we think men should wear, how men should talk, what kinds of language they use, how they walk. I mean, this is all stuff that's not coming directly from a biological um, effect, but specifically from young folks, babies, you know, growing up to adult, adulthood, reading the signs of gender and how they're supposed to act as a man, you know, and playing out gender in that kind of context. This facade that McConan and Mark are talking about, 
is one of the scales we use to measure ourselves within the culture. You know, when you think about, you know, legible or something that you can read, you can recognize it. And there's certain images that when we see them, we don't even have to process them because they're so legible to us. Now, the way Mark explains his concept of legibility, it's as simple as the difference between seeing a black man with a basketball versus seeing a black man with a violin. One image is so familiar, you wouldn't even question it. Whereas the other, it might give you pause for a second, just because it isn't the stereotypical image you might expect. And if you think about, you know, hip-hop circa 2000, right, Jay's look, you know, as what Diddy's look. Um, we could go on and on, right? You know, uh, Ja Rule's look, right? Nas's look, right? They all look like they're hip-hop, right? Even as they're doing very different things, they're different skill sets. It is the look of hip-hop which allows it to be easy to be able to market them, right? And they take that basic image, right, that's so accessible to folks, that's so legible to folks, and then they build out different kinds of personas and sensibilities out of that. Part of keeping up the front of legibility was distancing yourself from anything that was seen as other. And the easiest way to prove you weren't gay was by being homophobic. I think when we talk about queerness broadly in the black community, but also in this case in hip-hop, it really has to do with optics. If black queer men or black trans men are too prominent and visible, it is a comment on the failure of black men, quote-unquote, real strong heterosexual black men, and by extension, the black family, right, to produce men in that way. Hip-hop took that kind of notion to a different kind of level by presenting to us these readily available images of not just masculinity, but hyper-masculinity. Yeah, if you're from a certain era of hip-hop like me, you might remember how ingrained homophobia was in the music. I mean, it's almost hard to know where to begin. You could damn near play a game of pen to tell on the rapper blindfolded and still be guaranteed to land on flagrant offenders spread throughout the last several decades. You'll be able to break a motherfucking table over the back of a couple of faggots and crack it in half. The irony of the prevalence of homophobia in hip hop is that rap is, how do I say it, gay as hell? I mean, rappers were okay with hanging with the homies, making music in cramped studios overnight with the homies, rapping shirtless and sweaty on stage with the homies, basically spending every waking hour being intimate with the homies. They just didn't want the homie to be gay. It's a fear that says way more about the fragility of hypermasculinity than it says about the object of their fear. So despite rap's homoerotic tendencies, this was the no-homo era, when rappers like Cameron took distancing themselves from all things seemingly suspect to a whole new level of absurdity. Let me just say something. Are you gay? Not at all. Okay. Far from me. So, like, why do people feel like they need to keep reinforcing that over and over? I mean, it isn't about being gay. It's about saying, saying something gay. For instance, my man Jim Jones said, I'm going to beat you with that till all the white stuff come out of it. That's mm -hmm. wild homo told somebody else that. No homo, he ain't telling me that. You understand what street I mean? Boy, That's the perfect boy. example. Oh it's just crazy. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to understand it. My thing is like... But this isn't even about being gay. This is about saying something this is gay. About let, this is about letting someone know that you're not gay. Who cares, right? No, this is about saying gay things by accident. No homo. This isn't about a person's really being gay. Yeah. We know that they're not really gay. We are going to rock the mic next hour. Cam that's thinks, a, that's thinks a good rock the mic, That's Tommy. a good rock the mic. No homo. Have you... <laughs> you see? Nah, rock the mic is homo, if you know what I'm saying. No, like, it's not. <laughs> in a world where no homo is the default, association with anything seen as queer becomes suspect, too. So when Ebro started questioning McConan's sexuality in that interview, it could put anyone affiliated with him in the line of fire, especially Drake. Drake is an artist who's always been challenged by these questions of authenticity. Again, Mark Anthony Neal. Because his style of rapping, his affect, it, you know, obviously he got some bangers that folks say that's a hip-hop record, right? But, you know, most of the time he's doing this kind of weird sing-singy, I'm not quite a singer, but I sing better than most rappers who try to sing. And there's an emotiveness, and this is a key point, right? You know, 
audiences don't know what to do with black men who are too emotive. Part of the polarizing response to Drake has been all about that sad boy emo-ness that he injected into rap. I still remember when the late DMX voiced his opinion on Drake on The Breakfast Club. What about Drake? You like Drake? No. My man. <laughs> he didn't even say a little bit. He didn't even say no. That's my guy right there. No. No. That's why X is necessary no. in the game right oh, there. Man. Now, why don't you like Drake? I don't like anything about Drake. Mm-hmm. Mom, I, I don't like his voice. I don't, I don't like I don't, what he talks about. I don't, I don't talk. Jeez, I be trying to I don't tell his like face. I don't, uh, like I, I, I don't like the way he walks like nothing. I don't like his haircut. <laughs> I might just, let me shut up. <laughs> I'll just stop right there. The same way DMX can't quite put his finger on it, there's something about Drake that just punctured rap's hard exterior. Because we think about women being expressly emotive. And in hip-hop, where emotiveness, other than anger (laughs) and rage, right, and in some extent reflection, there weren't a whole lot of range of emotions that you could express in hip-hop. And so Drake comes along, and he's so emotive, right? You can't think of another rapper ever who begs. Can't just leave it off that way. Nah. At least do I get an invitation or something, a statement or something. Ask about that, you would say it was nothing. Through all the missed calls from exes and broken-hearted ballads, Drake presented a type of masculinity that went against the grain at the time. He was illegible to rap's hardcore sensibilities. Too sensitive, too soft. And it was risky for him to break the mold of how much emotion that he could bring into his music. And to his credit, right, you know, he became Drake because of that, because he was an outlier. I think because there is this kind of anxiety, right, about Drake's performance of hip-hop and masculinity, right? There's still cats who still won't admit that he's a hip-hop artist. Right, they're cats who say that he was the death of hip hop, <laughs> right? Because he brought this whole other kind, you know. So you get the weekend, you get all this, you get a sound, right? This emo sound in hip hop that had never existed before, which is exactly what made Drake and McConan seem like a collaboration made in emo heaven. Together, they were making softer aesthetics a little more legible in rap. But if your authenticity is already under attack, like Drake's was, you could also make a collaboration like this. A liability. I think because he's already kind of a question to some folks, McConan becomes an interesting challenge for that, right? Because had he been a more kind of traditional hardcore hip-hop artist, I think you can withstand McConan being in your universe. <laughs> when you're Drake, that's a different kind of challenge. Now, all this was going down at the same time that cracks in McConan and Drake's relationship were starting to show. The EP was sort of like just automatically even happening, you know what I mean? But then I think it was like a second one afterward. And so the first one went good, and I got to go do the Loudest of Loud tour. I went around, you know, Europe and the U.S., played festivals. Everything was going good. Uh, I came out on Drake's set at Wireless. But that's when I knew something was weird. Because when I came out on set, uh, it was, you know, everybody was kind of like, and I started losing weight too, right? And, um... Drake had, like, made a little joke, like, oh, you little Eric Benet looking at me, you know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, and then, you know, like, ha-ha. And then, like, I just started to feel this vibe, like, like a little, you know what I mean? Something was said about me, but we not, you know, I don't know. So I'm like, okay. And so then when we go out to do the song, I'm just doing the hook, and as I was supposed to go into my verse, they just cut it. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I just got off stage. But I was like, this is crazy. Like, the crowd is going crazy right now. They fucking with me. Like, they they ready to hear, you know what I'm saying? I was working with And they just shut it off. And I was like, all right. So then I left that. And then it just started, you know, it was just like, this is getting weird. When we talked to McConan, he made it clear that the whispers he was hearing weren't about his sexuality. It was mostly stupid stuff, like years old tweets dissing Drake and calling him names. People under your dad's comments saying, y'all need to drop him because he said that uh, your song practice was lame back in 2011. And then he called you a red Elmo back in 2010. So you need to stop fucking with him now in 2015. <laughs> so, Wait, was that one of the tweets of yeah. red Elmo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I even told Drake when that happened. I was like, bro, like, it could have been any popular name. Like, that's what motherfuckers do. Like, we fucked up in the game, bro. Our little outlet, that's our only way of attention. You know what I mean? So it's like, it ain't nothing personal. But maybe the clearest evidence that things were falling apart was McConan's Tim Westwood freestyle, 
where he spent almost 20 minutes freestyling and dropping hints about his shaky label situation over nothing but Drake beats. And it's like, okay, Tim Westwood playing all these Drake beats, and I'm over here freestyling. You know, I'm I'm rapping. I'm eating shit up. And so now people are like, oh, you talking about Drake? He going after Drake. Motherfucker said I got dropped. Ha ha, that's a motherfucking hip hop shit. You know that's a motherfucking lie. Only place I drop that is in my goddamn pants size. Ugh. And it's like, okay, so I can't, you know what I mean? It's like, and then he turned the comments off on it because then they start saying, this is a trash freestyle. Nigga, I'm freestyle. I done freestyle for like 20, 30 minutes over all these different type beats. And so everybody, you know, and it's like, you going out of the drink. You bit the hand that fed you and all this shit. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just like, okay, I, who do I talk to? Who can, where's my outlet to say this isn't what it is? And I was like, all right. And then I posted, I did my next EP, right? And nobody promoted it. Drake didn't put it on the on the thing, and it just felt like it was there. So I was like, you know, I don't want to be over here. I know he said that he wanted to leave. And I was like, you want to leave? Why? It seemed like he wanted to leave. So I'm like, well, if that's what you want to do, then and do it, you know. But I know if, look, if you're in a situation where you're wanted and you're valued, you know, and you're respected, you probably won't want to leave that situation. That's when I left and went to Portland and started doing all my internal stuff like that. And I was like, you know what? Maybe it's me. Maybe I need to come out and be honest with myself and all this other stuff. I'm expecting other people to be honest with me out here. And so maybe people looking at me like, you fraud, you fake, nigga. We know you gay and you ain't out. So I was like, all right, well, whatever. I'm going to go ahead and come out as gay and let's see what that do. <laughs> and what did it do? <laughs> it blew up. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Made in Made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Arctic Wolf. The elite security researchers at Arctic Wolf have unveiled their essential insights inside the Arctic Wolf Lab's 2024 threat report. Discover the attack vector behind nearly half of all successful cybercrimes, why ransom demands climbed 20% from 2023, and find out why 2024 will be an especially volatile year for cybersecurity. Learn more and get your copy now at arcticwolf.com slash NPR. That's arcticwolf.com slash NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. In early 2017, a few months after his move to Portland, McConan took to Twitter to say what was on his mind. We asked him to read those tweets. Someone said to me, next time they see me, they was going to fuck me up. I said, next time I see me, I'm going to love me up. As a fashion icon, I can't tell you about everybody else's closet. I can only tell you about mine. And it's time I come out. And since y'all love breaking news, here's some old news to break. I'm gay. And now I told you about my life. Maybe you can go live yours. Word about McCona's announcement spread fast. That shit went all over the news. And then, you know, everybody started, you know, packing their bags, trying to figure out how to make their exit. Because if, like, if bruh's gay, then I guess all y'all might be gay? I don't know. But, you know, then you saw you saw the whole situation, the whole part of the seas where everybody was like, we was not in the club on Tuesday. We don't know nothing about Molly. Don't never heard of McConan. None of that. What, what you mean? When I came out as gay, 
everybody who I was working with, my whole community from Atlanta, not even just from Atlanta, because at the time, my Atlanta relationship got strained because they felt like, oh, you ran off with Drake and you left the home team. So it was like, okay. But y'all know Atlanta, y'all know I'm being the realest Atlanta motherfucker in this game right now, <laughs> coming doing this, coming out as gay. And so it's just like, it. we all going to be silent on that. Ain't nobody going to really say shit. You know, we're going we gonna to try to work with you because maybe that gay shit might work. You know what I mean? But we ain't really trying to, you know what I'm saying, work with you. One group that had something to say was his one-time collaborators, the Migos. Teach me how to whip it. Teach me how to whip In an interview with Rolling Stone, the group questioned McCona's credibility, calling it a contradiction that he could somehow rap about trapping and selling Molly while simultaneously being a gay man. According to McConan, no one from the label ever reached out privately either. When we reached out for this story, an OVO rep hit us with the no comment. I, they've never spoke to me or spoke on any of this stuff with me, so I, I just feel like um, OVO has been down with me since Tuesday. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we ain't never really had no, let's do some shit with you, because it's, you know what I mean? I guess I'm just, I, I'm just me from Atlanta. You know what I mean? I, I represent that. And I guess they only looking for a certain type of representation to be around. And so I guess it's the more harder thug, I go to jail type shit. I'm a thug motherfucker from Atlanta. I feel like they feel like that's what they can associate with. And then when they was trying to associate with me, it was like, I guess I, I am the thug motherfucker from Atlanta, all that. But I also am gay. And if you really know thug motherfuckers in Atlanta, you really know they're gay. I, I knew that this was going to piss everybody off more to make everybody happy. I know that more people were going to leave me than run towards me. You know what I mean? And that's why I did it. You know what I mean? Because I was like, I can't handle this fake shit no more. The way McCona sees it, it's like rap's growth is stunning around some real archaic ideas of masculinity. And hip-hop, as a result, has been slow to evolve. It's like hip-hop's about to turn 50 years old. And so I was like, let's imagine if hip-hop was a person. And let's look at all the transitions that person went through and all that stuff. It's like, but we consider that a real motherfucker? Or we consider that the fakest motherfucker around? Now we got babies out here. We got little Nas X and all these other little, the Lils again. We got a new group of Lils again and, and, and Lils that done grown into to fathers and grandfathers. Y'all still ain't saying nothing. What's going on with hip-hop? In the years since splitting from OVO, McConan's often written off as a one-hit wonder. But that's furthest from the truth. In a lot of ways... His influence is more present now than ever. The truth is he's become something of a cult hero for a lot of artists on the rise. His emotive sound cut a path for one of the biggest generational shifts in music. The rise of the SoundCloud era. From Lil Yachty. I know you want this for life. To Trippy Red. And Six Dogs. To Juice World. The SoundCloud era gave us more of the feels than almost any in the genre's history. It was time for tears and turning up. These were artists who didn't abide by rap static rules of masculinity. They rocked nail polish with their face tats and was likely to shop at Hot Topic as they were at Foot Locker. One of the torchbearers was the late emo rapper Lil Peep. Before his untimely passing, Peep and McConan dated briefly. I had a, you know, relationship with him, and then he ended up coming out as bisexual to his fans, and that gathered him a whole new support and was able to give healing to his fan base before he ended up passing on. But it still has helped them heal, you know, because it's like somebody else is able to show us it's okay to be us. They even worked on a whole album together that Peep once described as one of the most legendary albums of all time. It still hadn't been officially released, but the single Sunlight on Your Skin, it gave a peek into their relationship. Whether the industry wants to acknowledge it or not, McConan queered the trap. His sound, his style, his voice. Hip-hop might not have been ready for it, and might have puffed out his chest and said no homo. But that couldn't erase his impact. Like so many queer artists before him, McConan laid the groundwork that others are dancing on now. What's, what's your hope for um, 
queer artists in hip hop in the future and 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 whether or not the the culture and the industry has space for them um it's always had space it's just been in the back you know what I mean it's just the background space but the queer, they definitely always been here, but hopefully now they can get more accepted and move into the forefront. You know what I'm saying? We're 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 appreciative and thankful for your achievements and your uh your you know efforts that you provided to the hip hop culture, which you know allowed us to keep being diverse and keep thriving and accepting these new new acts and new artists and these new groundbreaking things that we've been able to enjoy since then. It's okay to be yourself. It's okay to be an individual. And it's okay to go and support those individuals. You know what I'm saying? The biggest thing I walked away with after spending a couple of days with McConan is this. Dude's good. And I mean that in every sense of the word. The music he's making now, the life he's living in Portland, even the freedom that he clearly feels in his own skin. It's easy to write his story off as an OVO tragedy, but that's just a footnote in a career that didn't start with Drake and definitely didn't end after him. Since I've came out as gay, everywhere I've walked through, everybody has bowed down to this gay shit. So it's like, it don't, it don't feel like it's just Portland. It feel like it's the whole world now. You know what I mean? I haven't had an issue being gay. Now it's like, oh shit, we listening to stuff, we making stuff. Like, good, thank you. Because last time everybody just wants to hear, is he gay? Is he gay? Is he gay? Is that the dude? Is he talking about this? Like, dude, get off of that. Move on. And I feel like the people here have been moved on from that and they don't. Care. They're into the the music and stuff like that, and the arts and the expression of the person. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, it's been very, it's been very good. And I wanna, I want that to go worldwide. And I feel like it is. Next week, queer aesthetics take over the mainstream. I had to let people know, like, no, I got my own career, I'm my own entity, I'm talented, and I'm going to make this work. Saucy Santana takes us through rule number seven. It's on the next episode of Louder Than a Riot. Louder Than a Riot is hosted by me, Rodney Carmichael, and Sidney Madden. This episode was written by Rodney Carmichael and Mano Sandresen. And it was produced by Mano Sandresen. Our senior producer is Gabby Bogarelli. And our producers are Sam J. Leeds and Mano Sandresen. Our editor is Soraya Shockley, with additional editing by Sam J. Leeds. Our engineer is Gilly Moon. Our senior supervising producer is Cher Vincent. Our interns are Jose Sandoval, Teresa Shia, and Pilar Galvan. And the NPR execs are Keith Jenkins, Yolanda Sanguini, and Anya Grunman. Original theme by Casa Overall. Remixed by Susie Analog. And the scoring for this episode was provided by Susie Analog, Ramtin Arablui, and Casa Overall. Our digital editor is Jacob Gans. Our fact checker is Candice Courtcamp. Like and subscribe to us, y'all. And if you have thoughts about this episode and you want to talk back, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Louder Than a Riot. And if you want to email us, it's louder at npr.org. From NPR Music, I'm Rodney Carmichael. And I'm Sydney Madden. And this is Louder Than a Riot. I made Tuesday at Mike's producer's house, um, Mars and the other ear drummers. And Ray Streamer was there. And they was they wasn't even fully um, formed yet. It was They were still, you know, 
getting their foot and stuff. And they, I remember when they first met me too at that house, they came downstairs like I was Kanye West or somebody. And I was like, I don't know what Mike is telling motherfuckers out here, but y'all are goddamn acting a little too crazy with me. Like, bro, I, I barely got a quarter tank of gas outside. Y'all looking at me like I'm, you know, somebody. What, how did they come downstairs? What did they It was like, oh, shit, McCall, bro. Oh, man, like, yo, big fans, bro. And I'm like, big fan, like, I don't even have nothing out. Like, what's what the people talking about? And he was like, no, Mike, show the this, Mike, show the that and they they just spirit and their eyes was just so like yeah and then they was like all right we're going about to work and they was like all right bet we finna sit back here and they just sat in the back and was just like looking and like oh shit he about to do it this message comes from npr sponsor progressive insurance where drivers who save by switching save nearly 750 dollars on average get your quote at progressive.com and see if you could save Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP. Always designing for people. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.